Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert. I'm Dax Shepard. Hi, Miniature Mouse. Hi there. I'm here. How you doing here? I'm doing good here. We're in your apartment. We're in my apartment. Your safe space. Yes. The air quality is poor in Los Angeles. It's not ideal air quality. And I've made the air quality in here worse with many trips to the bathroom. <laughs> and you've been a real gentleman about not rubbing my nose in it. And I just want to thank you and I want to thank the listeners. And mostly I want to thank Keith Urban. <laughs> Keith, of course, is an Australian singer, songwriter, and record producer. He has four Grammy Awards and 19 Grammy nominations. Count them, 19. Wow. So you count to 19 right now, Monica. I can't. I count he, that high. Okay. He has a new album out September 18th, The Speed of Now Part 1. Again, that's The Speed of Now Part 1 that's coming out on September 18th. So check it out. And please enjoy the very charming Keith Urban. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy? So easy. The best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by Uber Eats. Spring is here and now you can get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana, that's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry, no. But a box fan? Happily, yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets, product availability may vary by region. See app for details. He's an How are you doing, man? Good, Dax. Good to see you. You're in Sydney. Is it morning? It is morning, yeah. It's just after 11 o'clock. Do you live there? Well, we live in Nashville, but Nick is shooting a film here right now because they can shoot here. So we re relocated for the duration of the shoot. And how do you enjoy that? Because I, too, am in that situation where I have to join my wife sometimes in a town and be a full-time dad and all that. Do you dig it? Yeah. I mean, we've been together 15 years and I'm so used to it. I'm a touring musician anyway, so I'm used to just gypsying it around and living in different places, set up camp wherever, and this is home for a week or six months, whatever it is, and just get into the groove of that being home, you know? Yeah. Do you have that thing where it's like by the end of a tour, you're miserable and you want to be off of it? And then like three weeks later, you're like, I'm fucking miserable at home. I got to get back on tour. Do you find yourself in that cycle? Yeah, of course, all the above. But I got to keep reminding myself: no whining on the yacht. <laughs> <laughs> no whining on the yacht. <laughs> no. <laughs> now, when you're back in Australia, do you have places you're excited to go back to? I love Sydney. It's just a really beautiful city. I was raised up in Brisbane, Queensland, which is quite a ways north. I love it. There's a big harbour, but then you've got the beaches, and then you've got rainforest, and then you've got a city. You get suburb. You get a whole blend of everything. 
It's a really charming place. It is. I'm afraid to pronounce the town you were actually raised in, but uh, Kabulcher? Yeah, spot on. Kabulcher. Kabulcher, yeah. What would you compare Kabulcher to? Is there an American city that you could... You, it's funny because you almost say Kabulcher. You're so yeah, close to Yeah, you're it. on the verge. <laughs> <laughs> Which it's, is it's another word word. I can't really say, Kabulcher. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was growing up there, it was just a small dairy town. They had a big dairy co-op factory there and... That was its claim to fame, and it was a bit off the freeway. But over the years, it's become enmeshed and pulled into the great city of Brisbane and become a bit of a suburb, really, even though it's an hour away. But it was a good place to grow up. I mean, I moved around a lot. In the city of Brisbane, I went to five different schools in the first five years of my life. So we were always moving around. Finally moved to Caboolture when I was about 10 uh-huh. and was there from the age of 10 till 18 or so. Why were you born in New Zealand? Was that like a, a logistical <laughs> error or were, my were they living there. there? I didn't know if they were on holiday or something and she just gave birth there or someone lived there. No, so my mom and dad were born in New Zealand. Oh, okay. I was only just born there actually because my mom and dad went, well, we'd like to maybe go to Australia, more opportunity. Let's go to this big unknown place and see if we can start a new life there. They went over to Melbourne actually and my mom got pregnant. My brother was born in Melbourne. And then they went, you know what, this is kind of great here in Australia, but maybe we want to move further north up to Queensland. Let's go back to New Zealand. We'll sell all of our stuff and we'll make this big permanent move. They went back to New Zealand. I was born. And then when I was two years old, they moved back to Australia. Now, I moved a bit as a kid as well. What was driving all that movement? Your dad, he owned a convenience store. Is that accurate? Yeah, a bunch of different places. He was a drummer, so he sort of like was frustrated musician trying to find his artistic creative outlet but also feed his family and did all kinds of different jobs and so we never owned a house we we're always renting and they were always pieces of crap and uh-huh. a lot of the time it would be a corner store that he'd take over and there'd be a house attached in the back uh-huh with like two bedrooms kind of thing and as basic as it comes and we just kept moving all the time he'd sell that place go to some other place always moving Starting school over and over again is not ideal. How'd it go for you? I have a brother who's two years older than me, Shane. That was kind of good having a two-year-older brother going into these schools. But pretty quickly, the guitar became a great way for me to get accepted. Yeah. Do you play any instruments? I play the drums poorly. I would say I'm a four out of 10 drummer. I've been playing the guitar for 20 years, never taken a lesson. And I play like someone who's been taking lessons for three months. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of where I, I'm at. I, I hate right. instruction of any kind. I have a lot of yeah, me too. male authority issues. <laughs> As I learned a little bit more about you today, I think we have a lot of parallels. My father was one of the great drinkers. He did die sober, which is amazing. Good for you. Good for him. Yeah, but he was a party animal mm. and he caused a lot of those moves. Mm. I was wondering, do you have good spidey senses? Better now. Are you good at reading when someone's about to turn? (laughs) What kind of person and what kind of turn? Well, in addition to my father, I also had a string of stepfathers who also loved to imbibe. And I got good at predicting when the good time Charlie was about to turn into the maniac. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because I kind of became that myself for a long time. Oh, me too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is what it is, right? You're born with that or you're not. And if you are... Good luck. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I've gotten a lot better over the years at not questioning my instincts. Uh Uh-huh. 
So I was thinking about you in playing guitar. So you got into it pretty young. You started taking lessons and you had a great aptitude for it. And you were even on TV as a young kid. So I was thinking <laughs> with your looks and getting attention for being on TV, that can go one of two ways in school, right? Every guy could hate your fucking guts or, or sure. you could be embraced. So what right. version did you have? Uh, a bit of both. But I tell you, one of the things I remember from high school in Queensland at that time, primary school was grade one to seven, seventh mm. grade. And then you moved over to high school, eighth grade to 12th grade. That transition from, I guess it would be middle school, right? Yeah. To high school is brutal because yeah, you yeah, yeah. go from like the coolest kid back of the bus <laughs> running the show to like yeah. nobody nothing just squatter <laughs> and, uh, it was a rough transition for me but they were doing a production of oliver and they're like we need a little blonde-haired kid who can sing not a lot of options and uh -huh. so i can't act for shit but i could sing and so i got the gig they we did this picture of me with holding the little bowl <laughs> yeah yeah the poor little <laughs> <laughs> and they stuck it on like a little badge little pin thing right and handed them out to all the kids in school so it was like my first taste of fame yeah it was my face on all these kids wearing these things around and prior to that knowing me and everything i'm like this is fantastic about a week after the musical finished it was right back to shit zero again <laughs> and i went I got it. Okay. I see. I got Good it. Good lesson to learn right out of the gate. It was an amazing lesson to learn at 13. It was really important just to know that this is all bullshit and don't, don't buy into it. Well, so similarly, junior high for me was the peak of my life. If I could relive any year of my life over and over again, it'd be, it'd be seventh grade. It was say. the only, only time in my life I touched what Brad Pitt experiences. And then grew another foot, lost 10 pounds, changed high schools. And I was at the back of the line, as you say. And for me, it ended up defining who I was in that I was like, okay, so you're not going to bet on your looks. You're going to have to really pick up the personality aspect. <laughs> you're going to have to learn how to dance and get funny or you're fucked. Right. Can you dance? Yeah. Monica? Yeah. Yeah. Rated wow. out of 10. A seven? Oh, you're really putting me on the spot. Yeah. One time he said he could dance as well as Bruno Mars. In my defense, right. I had not seen Bruno Mars dance. Just for the record. And then I showed him a video, and then he was like, oh, I can't dance. I cannot do that. As yeah. Well as yeah. 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 A seven and a half. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Went up a half. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I always recommend to young men, you know, learn a couple jokes, learn to dance, and everything will just, it'll work out enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what was the country music scene in Australia? Obviously, I don't associate Australia with country music all that much. A, right. was there a thriving scene? And B, had there been an Australian musician that had become successful in the States by way of country music prior mm. to you? Not one that I knew of that I'd use for inspiration or anything like that. My dad, being a drummer, grew up in the 50s, got infected by the rock and roll bug, and consequently, America was everything. It was all my dad obsessed about. We're going to live in America one day. Uh. Never did. But... I inherited all of that. And then through my dad's 60s and 70s, he moved from early rock and roll, which was very rockabilly, you know. Sure. He moved over towards country, particularly through the 70s, and became obsessed with American country music. Charlie Pride and Waylon Jennings and Merle Haggard, oh. Johnny Cash. The original Outlaws. That was like the high watermark, right, of country? Yeah. The 70s was a great time for country music, I think particularly because it was the start of individualism in a really big way. I mean, Whalen was the first guy to use his road band on a record. 
that had never been done before. That was oh, blasphemy. Really? You had to use session musicians. And he was like, no, not going to do it that way. And really opened the doors for everybody since who wanted to do it their way like me. But on the back of all these records, it used to say recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. And when I was seven, eight years old, well, I'm looking through all these credits and these records and I go, oh, if you want to make a record, you go to Nashville, Tennessee. That's where you go. So it was imprinted right from then that I would live there sometime, someday. Now, was there any moment where you were locked into that dream that you thought, well, wait, rock and roll is going to probably result in bigger shows, more backstage action? Were you at all allured? I, I noticed that one of your idols, guitar speaking, was Lindsey Buckingham, which is a great idol to have, by the way. Yeah, uh, yeah. Were you ever tempted to go down that path? Well, backstage action wasn't on my mind at the age of eight. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, was, be... it was for Dax I mean that's almost 7th grade I guess <laughs> yeah that was the hype yeah yeah yeah. that was it look at the end of the day I think I'm like a lot of boys I was trying to get my dad's attention right uh-huh. I just wanted my dad's attention and yeah. so I was gravitating towards whatever it is that my dad seemed more interested in than me uh-huh. and if he was more interested in these country artists then that's what I would do yeah. And so I sort of fell towards that style of music and learned those kinds of songs. And before I knew it, that's what I was doing. When I got to be sort of 14, 15, the music that was talking to me was Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and Whitesnake and Saxon. And I'm like, that's the stuff that was talking to me. Yeah. And so I joined this heavy metal band called Fractured Mirror when Perfect I was about 15. Title. Perfect name. <laughs> yeah, it's taken from an Ace Frehley record, which is kind of weird. Well, he also didn't he have smashed mirrors on his vest. Paul Stanley did. Oh, on his oh. vest, maybe. Yes, he did. Yeah. I think Ace might have had him on his vest. You're right. Paul yeah, ended yeah. up putting him on the guitar. Anyway, we're getting lost. <laughs> um, but I joined this heavy metal band at the age of 15. But at the same time, a friend of mine had turned me on to these Ricky Skaggs records, which is sort of like bluegrass, pop, fusion, whatever the country, whatever the heck Ricky was doing at that time. And he had this guy called Albert Lee playing guitar. And I was like obsessed with Albert Lee's chicken picking. This chicken picking thing was like, what the hell is that? You know? So I'm in this heavy metal band. I'm listening to Ricky Skaggs records. And I'm not quite sure which way I'm supposed to go. And yeah. I got fired from the band one night because we were playing a gig. <laughs> we were playing a gig. I got the Fender Strat. I got the Marshall stack. I've got the, I'm just, I looked apart. I'm, yeah. I'm killing it, you know. And they throw me a solo in this song, and I just bust out this chicken-picking guitar solo. (laughs) The the lead singer looks at me, he's like, what the fuck is that? (laughs) I was fired, and I realized I had a musical identity crisis right then and there to come to terms with which way I was going to go. And in the end, look, it was about not choosing anything. It was just fusing all these things together and Mm -hmm. figuring out, well, I'm a bit of this, I'm a bit of that, I'm a bit of that. I'll just figure out how to put all that together. It takes a while, though, doesn't it, to acquire that kind of confidence in yourself that your version of you is enough and can be a thing. I've had that experience just as an actor. I was trying to be this person and that person, and then just finally I was like, oh, I think I'm enough. I can just be me. But that takes a while, doesn't it, to have that kind of conviction? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Especially moving to Nashville in the early 90s when I did. Man, that was really rough because I wasn't doing anything remotely that made sense for me to be there as far as they saw. And they were right. I mean, I had a lot of stuff to figure out, but I I wanted to figure it out there. I built up a really good career in Australia, but I watched enough people to know that whenever you decide to go and pursue things in America, which is Oz, right? It's just the yellow brick road. And if you're one in a million, there's 320 of you there. 
And so if I'm going to pursue this, it doesn't matter how successful I am in Australia. None of it translates when you get to America. You just start at the back of the line, no matter who you are, they don't give a crap. And so I went, if I'm going to starve, let's get on with the starving. Let's get to Nashville and start starving, you know? So I'm glad I went there early on. I'm particularly interested in your move to Nashville when I learn your story today, because I was going to Nashville often in the mid-90s for work. I worked for General Motors, and now Nashville is like the greatest city in America. It's just so wonderful. I, I love going there, and it's changed so much. But in the 90s, even just being from the North and being a Yankee was potentially dangerous, or there was some attitude that you would get at the bars. And you being from Australia, I can't imagine it was very easy. It wasn't. But I got in with a good bunch of songwriters. And the thing everybody loves to do is just pull out guitars and start passing them around and playing songs and just little jam sessions, impromptu things, whatever. And it was apparent very early on that I knew my stuff as far as all the history of country music. And even though I didn't look like I fit in, I was there for the right reason. And it just took a long time. It's a small town like any small town in Australia. They're really, really wary of the carpetbaggers coming in. They're like, what's your caper? What are you doing here? What's your story? You know, and I get that. I'm from Australia. I'm from a small town in Australia. We're exactly the same. We're like, who are you? What's going yes. on? What are you scamming here? You know, so I get it. Yeah, this is our thing. What are you doing this here? This is our thing. And yeah. I went there as a guest and I've never lost sight of that. I'm a guest there. And even though I've been there 27 years, I've never lost sight of the feeling and remembering that I'm a guest and trying to build a life there. And I've been really fortunate to be able to build a really good life and good family in Nashville. Well, I came up with a theory, and this will be hard for you to confirm or negate because it'll require you to brag. But when I was thinking of your time in Nashville, I have to imagine what had to break through is that you're just a bad motherfucker on the guitar. Like once that was demonstrated, it must have cut through a lot of that xenophobia or what are you doing here? It helped and it hurt in the sense like, right, but what do we do with that? (laughs) Uh uh-huh i had a little three-piece band and we used to play these shows all the time the classic showcase for the record companies to come and see us and god i hope we get a record deal you know and we did so many disastrous versions of those (laughs) (laughs) there's a unique uh, misery in it isn't there (laughs) oh my gosh a unique misery no question but there was this guy from sony records who used to come and see us play all the time and he would be there till the bitter end there at the beginning and i just loved it and I came up to him one night and I'm like, man, you're at all of our gigs. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, why do you come? He goes, ah, oh, because I love you guys. And I said, then why can't we get signed? He goes, I'm the only one that loves you guys. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, wow, what honesty. <laughs> so I'm like, what am I doing wrong? I don't know what to do. You know, People are always like, do your best. And I'm like, I'm doing my best and it's not getting me anywhere. So what now? Yeah. What do I do? He said, Keith, you're really unique, man. And it will be your biggest curse until it becomes your greatest blessing. Oh, God, isn't that the truth? He just said, stay the course and don't acquiesce. And he was spot on. It took a long, long time, but it eventually happened. Did you ever get to work with him professionally? No, I didn't. But sometimes it sounds like the most cornball, cheesy advice like that, right? Some sort of like Hallmark card or something. Hang in there, kitty, you know? Yeah. And you tell people that and they're like, that was the advice that made a big difference. But on that night, when he said it to me, the way he said it to me 
it went right to the core of my whole being because I was trying to fit in and I was compromising on things. And I went, well, compromising is not a good thing, but maybe adapting would be the yeah. right thing. So let's figure out what do I do that makes sense right now and just focus on those and let go of the other stuff till later. I always use this example, right? Do you really present your real self when you go to meet your girlfriend's parents the first time? Nope. Well, <laughs> not really. I never did. Right? But when I met Kristen's parents, I was like, I'm 32. I own a home. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going to present okay. the real right. me. And guess what? It backfired. It took me about <laughs> two years to win back over my father-in-law because I was just like, dude, I'm just a fucking dude. You know, I, I'm not going to Eddie Haskell you like this is me. I'm a recovering addict. You know, I'm an ex scumbag, and but but I, I'll treat your daughter well, and that that yeah, I, I probably could yeah. have done a better job. But I so agree with what you're saying. I have a couple different actor friends who are so unique, and as they will audition for things, maybe they'll ask me to go over it with them, and I will often urge people like, dude, it's so much better to not get hired for 85 jobs to finally get hired to do the thing you can do. It's worth losing those 85. Right. To just stay the course and then get hired to do what you do, that's your only real shot of breaking out. There's really only one way to do it, which is just you got to keep doubling down on what you are. Another thing, when I got to town and somebody said, you know, what's your goal? And I said, what, to get a record deal? And they're like, no, that's not the goal. I said, what's the goal? And they get to get the right record deal. Um, and I said, what do you mean by that? And they go, the one that lets you make the record that you want to make. It's yeah. your voice. It's your music. Wait out for that one. Like you said, Dex, pass over all the other ones and wait for that one. Because once you get it, I saw some artists have a lot of success acquiescing everything. Yeah. Being given the song, being given the band, the musicians, being given the producer, all court appointed attorney kind of thing, right? And they would have success. And their attitude was, as soon as I get success, I'll pull the reins over to my thing and I'm going to do it my way. But what oh. they found was the record company didn't want to change anything. If they had success based on that formula, they didn't want to change the formula. And then they were stuck. And so I thought, all right, well, I'll wait till we get a deal where I can be the producer and I can choose the musicians and the songs and everything else. And it was really good advice. Now, you played Grand Old Opry for the first time in 93. You moved to Nashville in 92. These right. dates sound semi-real. Yeah, well, okay, so this again, where I feel like I, I maybe had a shared experience with you, which is I moved to LA and I was 10 years of auditioning before I got employment. And you were wow. you were seven years before you release Keith Urban, your self-titled album, right? Yeah. That's a long time in your 20s, isn't it? Yeah. For me, it was, uh, I needed comfort. I mean, I think I would have been an addict anyways because of the genetics and some childhood mm -hmm. trauma, but... I certainly needed relief from that decade battle of like failing at something I loved. Yes, yes. I got asked a lot, did you think about going back to Australia? And I went, not once. I literally never once thought about it. That just wasn't an option. Yeah. It always felt like success was just around the corner. It was just right around the corner, except they kept moving a fucking corner. <laughs> yeah. And you must have had friends as well. Like you were seeing probably peers find success. Yeah. I was on the fringes for a long time, it felt like, and trying to move closer to those kinds of people. I didn't know those kinds of people really. Man, it's, I mean, when you look back, you must have that feeling of like, I can't believe I got out of that alive. I cannot believe that I stumbled into this whole thing. Oh, 
you look at the odds of an American moving to Nashville with tons of talent, the odds of them succeeding, I don't know what the number is, one in a million, one in two million. You add on coming from Australia, I hope you've had the moments where you could take that in and go, my God, man, good on you. You, you fucking, you know, it's, it's true. It's an incredible, an odds maker's not betting on Keith Urban from Australia, I don't think. No. I, I, no. Now, are you the type of person who you're forward looking or you're so goal oriented that it's hard for you to take stock of that? Or maybe even you feel like by acknowledging that you'll jinx yourself? Or have you been able to enjoy that accomplishment? Probably a bit of all the above. I know when I got my first house in Nashville, when I got to buy my first house, which would have been mid-2000s, you know, somewhere around there, 2004 or something, and I got to buy my first house ever, it was a pretty decent house, pretty badass place. And I remember <laughs> driving up the driveway one time, looking at it, and seeing, you know, you may look at a brick house, there's thousands and thousands of bricks in a brick house. And I remember looking at it going, every brick is a gig. Yeah, every yeah. single brick is a gig, you know. And I, every time I saw that place, that's what I thought about. So it certainly makes it sweeter that it yeah. takes so long. That is the weird, unique thing, though, about our profession, right? Is I went from one bedroom apartment for 10 years I had been in to same thing, brick ranch. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is an enormous change. Like there wasn't <laughs> the 1,000 square foot house and the 1,500 square foot house and the 3,000. It's just nothing and then uh, room to park eight cars. It was wild. Yeah, it was from rented, dilapidated crack houses pretty much. And that was the case for me to that was very strange. But at the same time, you've also worked 30 odd years to get to that place or whatever it's been, 20 plus years to get to that place. And man, it's just a huge amount of luck and perseverance and timing. And, you know, the first time I went to Nashville, I took this really terrible demo. I thought it was a great demo. And I took <laughs> it around to all the record companies. This is on a very, very early trip. Went back to Australia. I was waiting for all the office to come in. <laughs> it's crickets, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, Already negotiating in your head. I'm going to hold out on this point. I'm going to hold out. <laughs> and I look back and I just go, oh, my God, it was the worst demo ever. Just horrible. And um, I got one letter back from a woman called Mary Martin, who was uh, head of the A&R at RCA Records. She was so kind to take the time to write this letter back to me. And what I remember is she said, I enjoyed your tender thoughts or something or other. She said <laughs> this thing. And she goes, but country radio is in a traditional period right now. And your music is a little out of step. I hope you can come back here and find a good home. And it was really great advice in hindsight because she was basically just saying the timing is everything and your, your music this isn't what's happening, but it may be one day, who knows? So just come back here, start paying your dues and see if the pendulum swings to what you're doing. And it did, you know, albeit 10, 15 years later, ultimately. What was the turning point that leads to your first album? What happened? I had a little three-piece band and we got signed to Warner Brothers Records and we got dropped from that label, went over to Capitol Records, put out that album. It came and went, band broke up. And I was trying to figure out how to capture who I was in a studio and not sound like a karaoke singer. Mm -hmm. And every time I went in with session players and sang, I just sounded like a karaoke singer. Mm. I, I used to say I was sitting on the track instead of in the track. So I was working with all the sort of famous producers 
and nothing was working. And I said to the guy that's running my record company, can I just pick someone? And he's like, yeah, I mean, what have we got to lose? Nothing, right? And I chose this guy who was a session keyboard player called Matt Rollings. And I went, why don't you and I do it? We'll put a band together and we'll pick the songs and we'll just go at it as musicians. And we went in and recorded five songs, took them to the label and then went, oh, these sound great, do some more. So we went and did some more and finished the album, turned it in. And we didn't think that much of it, but they put the songs out. The first one did pretty good and the second one did a little bit better and the third one went to number one and then we're off and running. But to the point earlier that I was saying, the beautiful thing that happened because of all of that was the label then said, whatever you did last time, do that again for the next record. Oh, what a dream. And so I got to then choose my own producer and my own band, my own session, just take the reins. And I've been very, very fortunate to be able to do it with every album. And I'm still at the same label all these years later. Well, in the second album, then you produce seven of the tracks yourself. Do I have that right? Is that- yeah. 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 So the second album, that's when I kind of get aware of you musically on somebody like you. And it's mostly just because you played the shit out of the banjo. And it's so cool to see someone fucking rail the banjo that's a that's a hard <laughs> instrument to learn isn't it do you like the avid brothers i i like i'm obsessed with oh, watching. i love those guys look it's a six-string banjo so it's total cheating oh okay i didn't know i wish i could play a proper five-string proper banjo but it's all weird tuning and there's a key halfway up the neck i don't know what's going on but when i was making the record with my band in 1995 I had a song and I wanted this banjo part on it. This banjo player came in and he was playing it. I'm like, no, 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 like, ah. And he keeps handing me the banjo. Play me what you've got in your head. And I'm like, I can't play the bloody thing, but I can hear it. (laughs) It was driving me nuts. And I left the studio. I remember it so vividly. I'm like, God, I wish they made a six-string banjo tuned like a guitar because then I'd know what to do. So I went to this guitar store and I walk in and I kid you not, it's six-string banjo sitting there. I saw the six tuning pegs. I went, no way. And I pick it up and I strum it and it's like tuned like a guitar. And I went, how? Yes. It was like 900 bucks, which is like a grand more than I had. And so I put it on, you know, layaway. Went back to the studio the next day and I put this thing on this track and it was crazy. It was like, it was the missing sound. Remember that bit in, you know, in uh, Back to the Future, he's like, yeah, this is your sound, man. You know, he puts the phone up, right? To Charlie. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was like that. It was like the missing link had been found. And I put it on that song and then I put it on another song. It ended up being on most of that record. And then it's just been on most things I've done since in some way. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Are there some fantastic concerts coming to your city this summer? Mine too. In fact, Anderson Pack's playing at the Hollywood Bowl. I can't wait for Ooh, it. Ooh, that's exciting. If you want to be sure to see your favorite artist, you need to jump on it right away. I've already DM'd him saying, yes, I got to be in that front row. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. It's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. So what's the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Got your eye on a rock star candidate? ZipRecruiter's invite to apply feature lets you cut the line. Once you review ZipRecruiter's list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can easily invite your top choices to apply to encourage them to apply sooner. 
Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy? So easy. Well, the best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by BetterHelp. Listen, I understand that sometimes you want to keep things to yourself, process your emotions in your own time. But if you keep everything bottled up, it can have some serious consequences. I have therapy on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to it. I had therapy this morning. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and it put me in the greatest mood. We had a long, big day, and I just felt much better for having you. Because you were, not to out you, you were a little grumpy going in. I was. I was. I was to be <laughs> Rob and I received some texts this Yeah, I was locked morning. out of my therapy setting, which is this attic. <laughs> <sighs> But then you felt much better after. I felt much better. And I even made some apologies. Um, talking things out can be so helpful. And if you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend therapy. Check out BetterHelp if you've been thinking of trying therapy. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for any reason for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DAX. Now, having had some opportunities and then some heartbreak, after the first album's so successful and you get nominated for awards, you sell a ton of albums, you have number ones. On the next album, are you apprehensive or you're like, I don't know, man, there's been so much heartbreak. Or did you know like, oh, I found my thing and it's going to work? I think what happened was, you know, because I'm a live guy, because I grew up playing in the clubs, I just wanted to get out and, and play because the record was fairly produced uh -huh. intentionally. I was trying to get on country radio and make no apologies about it. I was trying to get on the radio. So I was had a particular sound and everything in mind for that, made the record. But then when we hit the road, it got looser and wilder and stretched out more. And so when it came time to make the second record, I wanted to bring some of that back into the studio, just a little more stubble, basically. Yeah. And so that's how the second record got just a little looser and they really continued on from there. Yeah. I love people who have paid their dues and the fact that you would regularly play at a water slide in Australia <laughs> just makes me so happy. What, what's that from? Play at a water slide? What? Did you play at like an amusement park when you were younger? Would you do like a... No. No. I'm going to sue the internet. <laughs> <laughs> um, shop I was in like a theater group when I was like seven, eight years old and we would play shopping centers. So there was no outdoor live shows at an amusement park? Nope. Fuck. Okay. Dang. Well, then you didn't pay your dues and you don't deserve any of this. And I'm going to, 
Call the people to. Okay. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> be well. Be well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, I want to share my personal discovery of you is really from American Idol. I knew who you were musically. I think I vaguely knew you were Australian. But then when you started hosting that show, I kind of just fell in love with you as a personality. I thought you were so kind and you were so knowledgeable about music. And it just kind of blew my mind what an interesting person you were. Did you enjoy that experience, getting to kind of just show your personality like that? Yeah, I did enjoy that. Because I've been on the other side of the desk a few times on singing competition TV things in Australia. And I know what it's like to be completely crushed and humiliated by a judge. And it's horrible. I, <laughs> I, was, in a, I was on a show called Pot of Gold in Australia when I was about nine. And they had a really scathing judge named Bernard King. And he was just mean. And that's why they had him on the show. It's just brutal. Yeah. And I sang a song, and, and he said, I desperately encourage you to escape the mediocrity, get out of country and western, and get into some real music. And he said, otherwise you'll end up sounding like Dolly Parton and being absolutely useless. Kindly learn to sing in tune. Ooh, 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 ooh. And the reason I remember all of that is because my mum and dad recorded it with a little cassette player next to the TV speaker. So I, I could hear that critiquing over and over again. Oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. But what I remember from it was I paid no mind to everything that preceded the bit where he went, you're intrinsically a good musician. And I said to my mom, what does intrinsically mean? And she said, she goes, well, he says that you're sort of inherently sort of a good musician. And I went, cool. <laughs> good for you. I just ignored the, I just ignored the rest, you know. <laughs> Okay, now explain this to me. This has always been something that I've always found very curious. So growing up here and listening to the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and all these British bands, who when I hear them sing, they sound American. There's something about singing. They sound American, and it's always kind of like a reveal that when I hear their British accent when they're talking. Mm. Explain that to me. And, and then, of course, it gets even more interesting that you're Australian, and then you, when you sing, you have a very country and Western kind of flow, and, and it's, you sound Southern to me. Well, I mean, it's all to do with the music we grew up being indoctrinated by, for sure. Uh -huh. I mean, all the blues cats in America influencing all the English guys. I used to get that question a lot. They're like, you know, how come you don't sing the way you talk, man? Uh -huh. <laughs> and, you know, the only example I could always give was I said, well, you know, the Beatles would say, here's a song called God Buy Me Love. And then they go, <laughs> can't buy me love. Yeah. yeah. And you go, what What happened to the cult? How did that become camped? You know, and it's just the, your heroes. You, you sort of you assimilate all of that and sing the way you sing and it's not conscious. I mean, when I sing, that's how it comes out. Well, I do think in country in particular, there's like a musicality to that accent, I guess. Yeah, it's a sing-songy kind of accent. Yeah, Southern it's accent. almost like a part of the music itself, that Southern accent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Now, I want to talk about your new album, which comes out September 18th, The Speed of Now Part One. Right. Am I led to believe there'll be a part two? Is part two already in the can? Not in the can, but uh, I got a few songs for that one. I just ended up recording too many songs. When you're making a record, sometimes record way too many songs, and I'm not a fan of 25-song albums. And I was struggling to figure out which ones should be on this record, kind of like 
who gets to be in the lifeboat and who doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> and I felt bad for the songs that didn't get to go in a lifeboat. So I went, well, I just have two lifeboats. So uh-huh. <laughs> that's how that came about. Now, you've been really prolific. I'm curious about your process. Like, how do you stay hungry? How do you stay motivated to keep creating? You have, I'm sure, a comfortable lifestyle, and you've got a family and a wife and all these things. So there's there's certainly a lot of temptation to just probably hang. So what, what keeps you uh, on fire to create? Here's a weird thing. I don't feel really that much different to when I moved to Nashville. I really don't. I was talking to a guy here in town the other day about that. And I said, you know, I don't have any awards in my studio. It's completely blank. Every time I go in, I'm like, what the hell? How do we do this again? What, you know, it, it just feels every time I walk in, I literally zero sense that I've ever done anything. None of it factors in. It doesn't come in with me. I don't think about it. Consequently, I don't feel any pressure, no expectation, nothing. I just come in blank slate. Yeah. And he said, oh, you've got beginner's mind. And I said, oh, what? And he goes, you've got beginner's mind. It's how you approach things. And I've never heard that term before, but that's what I have. I have a beginner's mind. I come at things just completely fresh every single time with total curiosity. What does this button do? What happens if I put that over there? Does this work? No, it doesn't work. You know, and it's just, I think it's really born of the fact that, and people forget this word, we play music. We play music. It's the first word. Whether ah, you're, you point. play drums, you play guitar, you play keyboards, you go and play a gig, you play. It's fun. And if you lose that first word, you're just dead in the water. You just are, you know. And yes, there's times that it's work. No question. But, you know, maybe get a blister on your little finger. Hey, work. Maybe you get know. a blister <laughs> on you. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I just I don't lose sight of the playfulness of it and have fun in the sandbox. I think about this often. I have a few different British friends who have families here in the U.S. So I'm imagining that your daughters, we both have two daughters, your daughters have American accents, right? I mean, they, they are Nashvillians, yeah. right? Born and raised, Nashvillians, yeah. Is that a trip? I, I try to imagine my daughters having a British accent, and I feel like it would be really a trip. I'm not aware of it. It's just how they sound. They've sounded like that since they could talk. So I couldn't picture them any other way. And probably from living in Nashville for 27 years now, they sound like everybody else. <laughs> they, they blend right in. You're the so, only one that doesn't sound right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I am surrounded by um, Monica, my wife, two daughters. We have a female dog. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of dog do you have, Dax? Who fucking knows what that it's thing a, is, it's right? It's a rescue rat. It looks like a, you know, I don't golf, but I've been enough times to see the rag that's on a golf bag that people clean their clubs with yeah. over and over again. <laughs> she deeply resembles that golf rag. She's not uh, the cutest. She's got yeah. one eye. She's a cyclops. Oh my gosh. What's her name? Barb, Barbara Biscuits. Barbara. Taffy was her original name. Taffodil. She's got a lot of names. We describe her <laughs> spine as curvy. If that tells you anything. <laughs> yeah. She's shaped like a camel with scoliosis. <laughs> and she's a cyclops. Do you love being around that much femininity and, and female energy? Apparently. Apparently, <laughs> apparently. Fit right in. I grew up, me and my brother, mom and dad, no sisters. But somehow I just fit right in to this uh-huh. family. And yeah, it's it's all all female. It's crazy. We have a male dog. So that's, that's yang the yin a little bit and balance things out. But I think because I have a band and I get out in the road with the boys and it's like, there's an, I got that covered. It's sort of like my team, my football team, you know, and, and there's a good balance in coming yeah. home and I love it. 
I love it. Yeah, I deeply love it. And yet I go to work on a car show I'm on and it's all dudes and it's all cars all the time. And I'm like, oh yeah, this also feels quite nice. I can yeah. be very uh, reckless with how I communicate and it doesn't seem to offend right. anyone. Yeah, yeah. not go too deep. Yeah. <laughs> I can be very direct and no one's crying. I I'll like be, that. I'll be talking to somebody, you know, about something, you know, one of my friends has got some medical issue or something and Nick would be like, oh, what's wrong with him? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, well, <laughs> so he's going to hospital. What's he going to, what's he going to hospital for? I'm like, I didn't know. I didn't ask him. <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's in the hospital. You know, he's not going there because it's his birthday. That's enough no, for me. <laughs> I know he gets that next Thursday. That's all I know. So it's all good. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm often grateful that I have two daughters because I don't have to be involved in that father-son thing that was very complicated for me and my dad. And the notion of, like, having to toughen a kid up or make all these things. I just feel this great sense of relief that... I don't have to do any of that. I love having little girls and just being sweet with them and, you know, uh, playing dolls and imagination and all this stuff. Right. Would it be hard for you to have a son? I guess I'll never know. I think I would have been okay with a boy. I mean, you yeah. get what you're meant to get, right? But I think I would have been all right with a boy. I learned a lot. We all do, right? From our parents of what to do, what not to do, all the rest yeah. of it. There was a documentary recently that came out it was two fathers and two sons from two different backgrounds who had boxing sons. They, they raised their kids up in the boxing ring. And the two different what, styles of fathering and the outcomes of those two, I can't remember the name of it. It was a really good documentary. One of the kids kind of went the way of the dad who had been convicted and selling drugs and the whole bit. And he sort of, his dad had gotten his life together. And then the kid went the same route and back in prison and the whole thing. And there was a great moment when the dad was like, what the hell's wrong with you? You know, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, I want to be like you. He goes, don't be like me. Mm. Be better than me. Mm. You're meant to be better than I am. And I was like, mm. oh, my God, I've never heard a father say that. Well, it was literally like, you are literally meant to be better than me. If you're not, I haven't done my job right. And I was like, mm. man, hit me like yeah. a ton of bricks. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, mm. that's heartbreaking. Well, if you remember the name of that, we are documentary yeah. junkies, and I, I got a boner just hearing there was one we had not seen oh, yet. Yeah. 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 Ringside, Ringside, that's it. Yeah. Oh, Ringside. Oh, we got to watch that. It just occurred to me that Rob listens. I felt kind of like someone was eavesdropping. Like a voyeur. Thank you, Rob. But also, I felt a little bit like, oh, there's someone listening. Ringside, okay, we're going to check that out. Yeah. Can I ask for, I'll, I'll start. I'll say uh, I met Kristen, and for the first time in my life, I think I approached it with a different set of criteria I was looking for. I think I led with, I want someone that's going to be a great mom. You know, I had different priorities at that time, for whatever reason, my age or being three years sober or whatever it was. But what is it about Nick that worked? One of the more successful relationships in show business at 15 years. So I'm curious what it was about her that you rose to the occasion for. <laughs> That's what happened. Definitely. Yeah. She's just the one. That was it. Yeah. She's the one that I was searching for my whole life. And everything not only changed, but had to change in me mm. if I was going to go that road. It felt like an ultimate fork in the road moment in my life. And it was literally like, you either get this right now or you are never ever going to get it right. This is your one shot. It was really, it felt so obvious. And I knew where I was going. I was going into the light, finally. It was everything I was looking for. And then yeah. some. I mean, beyond. Just beyond, you know. 
I've had my, you know, over 13 years now, I've gotten really comfortable with certain aspects, but some of them were challenging for me as like a generic dude from the Midwest who had ideas of what things were supposed to be like. And one of them being, well, I should make more money than my wife. I should be the provider. I, and I felt emasculated for some years that that she made more money than me or right. that we go to a party and more people remember her or that, you know, there's there's certainly some potential ego traps with being married to someone as successful as our wives are. Has that been easy for you to navigate? Yeah. Yeah, because it's only one of the things that is being brought home to contribute to the family. It's a big one, but there is so many other things that I can bring that help and blossom the family and protect it and take care of it and grow it, not just fiscally. So I bring everything I can most of the time, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I have to be brutally honest. It's like, you know, someone said, you know, I mean, you're in recovery. Yeah. It's like people go, oh, I work this program for the best of my uh, ability. And you're like, mm, probably not. You probably work this program the best of your willingness. Oh, yeah. Or the 1% more than I have to. Or 0.0% yeah. more than I have to. There's a song on my album called Better Than I Am, which touches upon a lot of these things. And there's a line in there in the second verse that talks about, it's more a truce, less a surrender. It's more a giving, giving more than I want to give. And that's what it takes. It takes me giving more than I want to give to actually live this life that I was trying to find. I just was never giving enough, ever. Yeah, I'm the epitome of the softer, kinder way. I was looking for like, okay, <laughs> I like eight of these steps. I'm totally into eight of these steps, but the God thing, I don't know if I can go down yeah. that road. And, and I certainly tried incrementally like, okay, this time I'm gonna try nine of the steps. This time I'm gonna try 10 of the steps. And I had probably 25 spectacular relapses and each time going back going, all right, I'm gonna do a little bit more. And then fucking lucky, somehow the last time through, I did what I would argue is probably 0.01% more than was required of me and it works. I always had an issue with people saying, oh, you're doing the same thing, expecting different results. I said, oh, it's not quite the same. It's just a sliver bit different. And I'd be like, well, you're splitting hairs here. And I go, yeah, but it's not the same. You know, and that's the absurdity of it. I used to say it's like a trillion number combination lock. And I'm seeing if it unlocks. Nope. And I move one number out of a trillion and then try it again. I go, see, it's different. You know, it's absurd. I have great gratitude that my using got me into recovery. It was worth it for me. It, it ended up changing some things. My life would be half as joy-filled. I'd be half present for people. Learning to be honest with myself, is it was almost unimaginable for a long, long time. Have you come to be grateful that you ended up on the path you're on? Oh, every day. That's not hyperbole. That is legit. Literally every day. I may not act it sometimes because I'm just human. Yeah. But I make amends really quick. That's changed my life in a big way. I was on the phone with somebody yesterday and I'd had a long day. It's a bit stressed and I was a bit edgy and I got off the phone a bit abruptly and I'm like, what an asshole. I shouldn't have done that. And I called the person right back and I just yeah. said, I'm, so, I'm sorry for that. I just had a crap day. It wasn't you. I'm sorry that I spoke that way. I just had to say that. I didn't want yeah. to get off the phone, you know, and they went, oh, thank you. And I felt better and they felt better. And it was like, God, that wasn't so hard. Just do that a little yes. more in my life. But what I will say about recovery for me in the guitar world, certain guitars, there's so much stress on the headstock 
where the mm. strings are. That a lot of the times that headstock snaps off. Mm, mm. You drop the guitar and that thing snaps off and you got to glue it back on. And more often than not, those guitars that have had that thing glued back on are stronger and sound better than they did before they got broken. And that is the metaphor for recovery. Uh, uh-huh. It's really true. I really think a person in recovery has a strength that they didn't have, that they were naturally born without it, and they're actually stronger for the break. Yeah. Now, speaking of amends, because I will say there are things I do shitty in this program and there are things that I'm good at. And one is I do I make a lot of those phone calls you're talking about. <laughs> and I'm curious what has occurred to me over the years of making those phone calls is people are often so shocked. And what I realized while I'm apologizing is they haven't been apologized to for maybe a decade. And I start realizing, mm-hmm. oh, this is something that people just generally aren't doing. This person's real. I can tell they're receiving their first apology in a long, long time. Right. And you kind of get aware of like, oh, man, yeah, that's one aspect I kind of wish everyone got to participate in, you know, without having to become a drunk to do it. It's right. just cleaning up your side of the street before you go to bed. As best as you can. Yeah. It's a better way to be. I know that much. And you're right. I think some people are shocked. What? Apology? What the hell? There's a song on my new album called Say Something, which is on one level about speaking up about things you believe in and not staying silent. And there's plenty of those kinds of causes and situations. But the song also touches upon things I wished I'd said to Uh maybe my family, my dad, people I didn't get to say sorry to before they drifted out of my life or Uh someone I didn't say I love you to and then they died or whatever. And so there's other times in my life I wish I'd said something because, I mean, we didn't have any intimacy in our family when we were growing up, like none, zero. So we didn't say anything. Nobody said anything. And yeah. you have to, you have to say stuff. We say stuff in our family all the time. Now with Nick and the girls, we talk about things and it makes for a way better life because of it. Were you nervous at all having not had that once you had kids of like, oh man, I'm going to have to try to break this cycle or did it just come easy for you? Uh, my mom was all of that. Oh, okay. Very affectionate really just divine from that standpoint, from an affection standpoint, telling us she loves us and all that. And the classic story, my dad did too in his own way. Well, he clearly showed up for you, right? I mean, that's one aspect, right? He helped make your costumes and stuff. Yeah, and he's just alcoholic. He wasn't a bad guy. He was just alcoholic and was dealing with the way he was raised, like we all are. You can't teach what you don't know, what you haven't been told, you haven't learned. You can't teach it to your kids. But between the two of them, we ended up with a decent life. You know, They stayed married all the way until my father passed away. And uh, we always had a roof over our head. Might have been a piece of shit, but we always had a roof <laughs> over our head. Yeah. So, well done. Not Might have dad. been sharing a roof with the convenience store, but it was roof nonetheless. <laughs> exactly. Now, when you say you have beginner's mind, knowing that you have that, when you do the speed of now, are you trying to head somewhere? Is there a goal in mind? There's a connection between pretty much everything, and certainly in music. There's a through line and threads that connect everything together. And I'm really driven by those kinds of things. You know, you hear something over here and you go, oh, right, that, that actually connects over there. And, that. and there's something about continuing to seek out those things that go together. I, I always use an analogy, and it's probably a terrible one, but I can't cook. I suck at cooking. It's something I wish I was really good at. One of the many things I could have learned in lockdown, didn't do jack shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
but like a great chef will bring all these ingredients from exotic faraway places into the kitchen and then start tinkering and seeing what works, what doesn't, and getting combinations right. That's what I do in the studio. I just bring all these unusual ingredients in and see what works, what doesn't, tinker and mess around with mixtures and combinations. That's what I do. That's what keeps me eternally interested because it's infinite. There's so much stuff out there to fuse together and see what works and what doesn't work. You have an alchemist approach to it? (laughs) Very much. Yeah. Yeah. Do you keep like voice memos? Like as you're moving through the world, do you like hear something or how do you keep track of your inspiration? Yeah, voice memos. I Shazam all the time. I'm the annoying guy standing on a table at a restaurant trying to get a little bit closer to the speaker in the ceiling (laughs) because there's something in this ambient music that's interesting and I want to know who the artist is. And I'm sure it'll be some French person I can't even pronounce. They always are. And I've got this obscure playlist because of Shazamming all the time. Oh, really? And then you bring all these things in to a writing session, and they're like, where the hell did you find that song? I'm like, oh, I was in a cab in like Paris. And I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I was trying to ask the driver who the artist was, and he only spoke French. You Shazam it, and you tag all this shit, and it's changed my life. Fantastic. Yeah, that's cool. a great tool. Who do you find currently very inspirational musically? It's sometimes a mix of things. Like there's some really cool stuff on the Weekends record that I love. Really cool things on Dua Lipa's record that I love. The way they sort of she filters all the '80s stuff. The way he does it too, but sort of makes it modern futuristic, even though it's obviously filtering all that '80s stuff. It's really cool. There's some tracks on the Chicks record that Jack Antonoff did, and I love him as a producer. He's just got a great sonic quirk to him. It's very very cool. Breland, a guy who I collaborated with on my record, is uh-huh. another really interesting artist doing some really cool fusing of things. It's really interesting. Have you come across Jack White down there? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, he seems like a really interesting synthesizer of weird, mm. different inputs. I mean, a genuine eccentric Renaissance man and incredibly talented in multiple directions crazy did you watch it may get loud that documentary yeah oh yeah yeah when he's building the little slide thing (laughs) it's fantastic yeah and then when he goes and plays with jimmy page i was like oh this guy's a force of nature he's sitting with two people that are legendary and he is a just a fucking volcano of ideas and passion yeah we went to his house for dinner one night and he had all these photo booths from the 20s and 30s like several of them and i'm like what the hell and they're all just in sort of dismantled and i'm like what what are these and he goes i rebuild those I'm like, well, of course you do <laughs> yes, of course naturally. that's what you would do <laughs> <laughs> yeah when he's not refurbishing covered bridges on his property or something <laughs> no and he has his whole upholstery thing out in the backyard he's got a whole shed where he does upholstery work he's done that for years and years but rebuilding, the, these things are complicated. They're complicated, complex oh, yeah. mechanisms in these photo booths. And it's insane. He's, he's crazy gifted. Yeah. Great guitar player. Well, I listened to The Speed of Now today, and I really, really, really liked it. And I will say that it's funny now to talk to you and hear about the process because I was hearing all this different stuff. It's so alive. There's so many different things happening. And It's not straight up the middle, and I really appreciate that. I enjoy trying to figure out what that connective tissue is. It makes you participate in a way that I really like. I think it's wonderful, so fantastic job. Thank you. I just think it's good when you can shed some of those labels and prejudices and expectations for anything and just let it find you. 
all art, really, movies, photography, sculptors, everything. Just let it find you without any preconceived labeling. It's a much better way to make a connection with art. Yeah. Well, listen, you're a joy. I really appreciate you finding you the time too, for us. Really appreciate you being on the show. And I pray I'll bump into you in Nashville. By God, do I love it down there. And yeah. I'd love to go work on some photo booths over at Jack's house. <laughs> the three of us. Yeah. Do some no daguerreotypes. We'll <laughs> yes, that would be fun. <laughs> All right. Well, be well. Enjoy your time down there in Australia and uh, love to your family. And Likewise. I'm glad we're on the same path, brother. Indeed, we are. Day to time, man. Bless you, You got it. Thank you, guys. Take care, Keith. Bye now. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. This episode is brought to you by Natrol. Sleep is a big deal. If you're not getting your Z's in, then it just makes everything so much more difficult and you feel a long way from the top of your game. So every now and then, not being able to get sleep and stay asleep is so annoying and you think, ah, if only there was something that could help. Well, there's sleep and then there's Natrol Sleep. Natrol is America's number one drug-free sleep aid brand, helping you fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Natrol melatonin gummies are made with clean ingredients like 99% pure melatonin to work with your sleep cycle, helping you sleep better, making the next day your best day. Natrol, sleep tonight, live tomorrow. Click, tap, or visit natrol.com to shop now. This product helps with occasional sleeplessness. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent diseases. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We are supported by Taco Bell. Oh, man. We often do two recordings a day, and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy, and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all-new Cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is Mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow-roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage, and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. You're in charge. I'm in charge. You're the boss. Two days in a row, you and I have had some um, symmetry in our outfits, which is yesterday I was wearing a pink top and you were wearing pink bottoms. And pink top. I was all pink yesterday. You were all pink, but that doesn't serve my <laughs> point very much to say oh, you were all pink. Okay, okay. But, but certainly I had a pink top and you did have pink bottoms. Yes. You also had a pink top. Okay. And then today you have yellow bottoms yep. and I have a yellow top. That's true. And that just feels fortuitous. We're color coordinated. We might win the lottery this weekend. <gasps> Should we play? Yeah. Powerball? Yeah, will you buy me some tickets? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll buy you some tickets. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because you can't win if you buy your own tickets. Exactly. Everyone knows that. Yeah, everyone. It's, it's too like selfish. A thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's too selfish. Now, what would you do if you won? How much? Four hundred million. Four hundred million. Sometimes that Powerball is in the like 
hundreds and hundreds of millions. You know oh. that, right? It's regularly at like 400 million. What? Yeah. Okay. If I won, yeah. I would make my house spectacular. Okay. You'd stay in the same house though. The one I just bought? Yeah. Yeah. I think you should. I just don't get mad. I'm mad. You could live anywhere on the planet with 400 million. That's all I'm No, saying. I'm okay. going to stay in the house I bought. Okay. Um, I'm just going to make it spectacular. Yeah. And then I'm maybe going to buy a new car. Uh-huh. What are you going to buy? Uh, Mercedes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> white, a white Mercedes? A white what Mer- color? A white Mercedes. Okay, okay. And then I'm going to... This already all sucks because you could already do all this, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm going to buy my parents a house. Okay. Here. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, how about Santa Barbara? Actually, yeah, it wouldn't make sense for them to have a house here because they all stay in my house. Yeah. So let's put, let's put them up in Santa Barbara because it reminds them so much of India. Okay. <laughs> for obvious reasons. I won't even go into why. <laughs> it's too obvious. Okay. So I'll buy them a house in Santa Barbara. I'm not going to give my brother any money. Okay. Well, uh, harsh, harsh. <laughs> and uh, I think that's all. That's all. Okay, great. <laughs> then I just save and then I'll feel comfy the rest of my life. Yeah. I would love that. That's all I want. Is to stop working and hang? No, I'll still work. Oh, okay, good. I'll, of course, still then work. Then what all you want? You just want to buy your parents a house? And no, I just want to feel paper. safe. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I would like to have like 200 mil. If I had 200, if I had 100 mil, well, let's okay. 200 million <laughs> Two hundred million's gone from taxes. Okay. Okay. Well, this so is not a very fun fantasy that we're taking well, no, taxes I, out, but fine. No, this is the reality. Okay. Two hundred million goes out for taxes to buy one twentieth of those stupid fucking airplanes. What airplanes? There's a fighter jet that's oh. like a billion dollars oh. per thing, and yeah. it has no purpose. I wish I could tell them my two hundred can't go to that. That's what bums me out. Is you got no. Say. My two hundred goes to education. Okay, good. Okay, <laughs> so then two hundred left, and then the house, the parents' house. Mm-hmm. So no money from left. my brother. <laughs> so one hundred ninety um, left. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And then oh, I could just safety. invest it. I would just keep a, a hundred. Okay. It's like really safe, like in a, a CD. Yeah, a and bond then, or and something. then ninety, I could play with a little. Okay, see if you can't turn it into ninety nine. Yeah, but if yeah. I knew that I always had a hundred million dollars, I would feel great. So I agree with you, but I do promise you that you'll live long enough where a hundred million is going to seem like four million bucks. I just know because I watch all these. 30 for 30s. And no, it's like it depends the on biggest, how you're the living. The biggest athletes in the world in the early 80s made a million a year. Yeah. Which was the equivalent. These football players are sending like $100 million contracts now. Yeah. And so what you have to say is like, oh, what happened to them is going to happen to us. You think about making a million last from since from in 1982 to 2020, 40 no, years? No, I'll still work. Okay. I'm still going to work and make money. I'm just going to have that there yeah. in, in case I need it. I'm, I'm not just saying that retiring. we're, you, I probably won't live long enough, but you will live long enough to see a moment where a hundred million is like a good amount of money, which is crazy. It depends on how you spend I mean, and who you are, like to Bill Gates, I didn't ask him, but I should have like a hundred million dollars is like, sure. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. But nice try. But to most people on earth. Yeah. That's an insane amount. That's not my point. Today, it's an obscene amount of money to everybody. Mm -hmm. My point is, is that when you're 90, Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. in 60 years, it's going to be shocking how much it's changed. That's all I'm saying. That $100 million in 60 years from now is probably going to be the equivalent of like $3 million today, which is just the crazy aspect of inflation. Yeah, that's true. That's all I'm saying. It's still going to be a big enough number that most people won't have it. I agree, but I just know that even growing up, people talked about millionaires. Like yeah. people wanted to grow up and be a millionaire. They still uh, do. I, I'm not out to lunch. I know that. Okay. But what I'm saying is that's not what's in the news now. What's in the news, you're not in the news for having money unless you have a billion. That changed in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. Like in the 80s, they'd talk about someone having $90 million. Mm-hmm. And it was the same as us talking about Bezos having like a hundred billion. And it's just crazy to me that in my own lifetime, yes. that's changed so much. That makes sense. That like, unless you have a billion, you're not even newsworthy. That's crazy. Right. Right. You're not newsworthy at a billion, to be honest. I hate to break it to everyone out there with a billion dollars. That's not true. No. If I know somebody, if I hear somebody has a billion dollars, I'm, I, I can't wrap my head around a billion dollars. Well, it's 10, 100 millions. Okay. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> What would you do with it? I would buy your parents a house in Santa Barbara. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'd redo your house spectacularly. Thank you. I'd give your brother $2 million. Uh -uh. (laughs) Ah, steal it from him. Mine aren't good. And um, this just came up in someone we interviewed yesterday. This weird predicament where if you grew up in the 80s, you bought into a promise and the promise now has changed, and it's a little bit of a bummer. Not that anyone, sh- I don't feel bad for myself, but I grew up in an era before global warming. Mm-hmm. Global warming. <laughs> and the entire reason I entered the workforce was to get cars. Yeah. That's the only reason I got a job. I wanted to get a Mustang, yeah. and, and I got one for working my ass off. And I largely work currently to buy cars. And they're all killing the planet. And that really pissed me off because what I would yeah. like to, the true, what I really want to do with $400 million is buy an airplane and I want to zip around the goddamn world all the time. I want to be like, mm, I'm in the mood to get a baguette in Paris. <laughs> and then I'm there. And then I'm like, because that's to me feels like teleporting, like a magic. Mm-hmm. Like, ooh, sushi tonight. You with me, Monica? Hop on the jet. Well, and it's just a drag that that's. That the thing I dreamed about, you just really ethically can't even do now. Yeah. And I feel a little betrayed by that. Well, why don't you put your money into teleport invention? Okay. Okay. So that you could still maybe get what you want Mm -hmm. through teleportation. That's not bad for the planet. Or flu powder. That's a way to travel in Harry Potter. Oh, okay. Yeah. What if I, I think more possible than um, teleporting being a reality in my lifetime, what if I invent a bag you put over the engines on the airplane? Okay. And then the bag catches all of the bad stuff. Mm. Okay. And okay. then when you land in Paris, before you have your baguette, yeah, you take the bag off and then you put it in this thing that makes a lot of pressure and it turns it into diamonds. Oh my It takes gosh. all the carbon okay, and then it crunches it into diamonds. That's good. That'd be good. Okay. And then I could guilt-free zip all over the place. Yeah. But what about like just... Small planes, like, they're kind of scary. No, they're safer. I don't know. They're all safe as fuck. Well, no, not the single engine ones, but the dual engine jets, like a G5, a G650, those things are as safe as a a commercial airliner because they have an extra engine. So if one blows, they can still stay in the air. Mm. They also fly at a much higher altitude and it's much smoother up there, less turbulence. Another reason I should have a jet with my mega mega bucks millions. Okay. Just put, you're just going to put money into inventions. Okay. Okay. All right. And maybe a, a jet pack. 
Okay. Invention as well. Okay. I forgot a big part. I'm going to give a lot to charity. Oh, okay. <laughs> I forgot to say that. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say how much. Okay. Because I don't want to sound. <laughs> you don't um, want to paint yourself into a corner. I don't want a virtue signal. Oh yeah, don't virtue signal. Yeah, but I will. I will be giving a, a large proportion to charity. Okay, let's let's role play one more time. Um, okay. Tell me, I've just won the mega millions. Congratulations, you've just won the mega millions. No. Four hundred million. Four hundred million. That's right. How much is that after taxes? Two hundred. Oh my god! You know what I'm going to do? What? I'm going to give two hundred ten million to charity. Oh, what a good <laughs> person you are. So winning the Mega Millions a climate wiped change. me out. Yeah, I had to go into debt to win <laughs> Mega Millions. Oh, boy. Okay, we got to talk about something. So, Keith, so you had a snafu in this episode. Oh, I big, big time. It's cut out. Okay. But we'll explain it. Okay, great. And hopefully he's listening because he didn't give me his <laughs> phone number, and I'd love to apologize to him. <laughs> but he said something. He said, like, no whining on the yacht, which is a great thing. He's basically saying, like, I'm not going to bitch about being stuck in a nice house during COVID or something like that. Like, he was acknowledging his his great privilege. Uh-huh. So it was, it was a really nice thing he did. And then I said, yeah, that's kind of like Tom Cruise. He's smart in that he's always in public walks the walk like everyone thinks he has the best life in the world so by god every interview he is smiling ear to ear and he lets you believe he is well tom cruise has diarrhea like everyone else he gets food poisoning his fucking feet hurt he's had a bunch of stunts he's in pain a bunch you know his life sucks sometimes but he's smart enough to never let anyone in on that right and so i brought all that up Not at all remembering that he was married to Keith's current wife. Nicole Kidman, yes. Very public marriage. Incredibly. um, (laughs) Obvious. Yeah. To avoid. And I didn't even think about that. And he was very chill and just rolled right through it. And then after we hung up with Keith, Monica was like, pretty big swing there bringing up Tom Cruise in such a fashion. And I was like, why? She's like, he was married. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's right. That's textbook me. In the middle of the interview, I had to text Rob Uh, uh, and I was like, oh my God. I can't believe you text Rob behind my back when I step in it. Actually, I don't think I've ever done it until now because I I had to communicate with someone immediately that that was crazy. Yeah. You had to share in the embarrassment for me. Yeah. Well, God bless him. He did not indicate in any way that had made him uncomfortable. No. So I didn't even notice anything. But in retrospect, if I were him and I assumed I did know exactly what I was doing, I would be on guard the rest of the interview. Like, what is this guy's fucking with me? So exactly. the fact that he was open and everything, I just want to applaud him. And yes. I want to publicly apologize that I, I didn't even think of that or remember <laughs> that. I don't, I'm not super hip to who's married to who, shockingly. I mean, I've never bought like tabloids and stuff. Of course, I'm not dumb. I know who's right. Once you said it, I was like, oh, duh, right. I mean, it was like just such a big public marriage. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, oops. That was an oopsies. To be honest, it's pretty shocking it took that many episodes for me to do something like that. Because that's yeah. kind of what I, that specializes in. <laughs> Put your foot in your mouth. <laughs> yes. And as anyone who's attended any kind of Hollywood function, it comes with a great risk because I say God. stuff like that all the time. Oh, man. Oops. Oopsies. Oops, 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 oops. Oopsies. Oopsies. Okay. So we don't have very many facts today. Okay. But Keith... Asked his mom what the word intrinsically means after a judge at the singing competition told him that he was intrinsically a good musician. 
And what does it mean? It means in an essential or natural way. Ah, you're intrinsically athletic. No, I'm not. Not at all. That's a story you like to tell yourself. No, it's it is. Because it makes your accomplishments that much bigger. You have elite muscle mass, you know? Well, you I have elite muscle mass, yes. but I do not have an intrinsic athletic ability. And that's what not could a story I tell myself. <laughs> what, I'm telling you it's not true. What could be more intrinsic than having it in your DNA? Well, That's the apex of intrinsic. I don't want to admit this. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think I have elite muscle mass. <laughs> Even though it was told to me mm. by genetic tests that I do, mm. I'm skeptical. Okay. Look at my muscles. They're so small. No, they're strong. They're elite and they're muscle and they're mass. <laughs> okay. In that case, I do have it. Um, you thought that Keith played at a water slide when he was a kid in Australia. A water park, yeah. And he said he didn't. And then you said you were going to sue the internet. It does say on Wikipedia. Don't say I use Wikipedia. Well, you do. You do? No. No, I do use Wikipedia. It's that I don't use Wikipedia. I know, I know, I know. See, whoever got so mad at me for using Wikipedia, why don't you get mad at Dax? He uses Wikipedia too. I use the shit out of it. Yeah. Here's my technique. I go to Wikipedia because I always get to find out their early childhood. That's the thing I'm most interested in. And it course. doesn't really exist many other places. So yeah. I, that's what I love about Wikipedia. I also pay for Wikipedia. I want to pat myself on the back. That is good. And then I look for interviews with them. That's probably my favorite way to research a guest yeah. is see how they respond to certain kind of questions, yeah. see what's like makes them uncomfortable or they're happy to talk about. And then I like if I can, I like to watch a bunch of interviews. Yeah. But on Wikipedia, it says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Urban performed regularly on stage at the Northern Suburbs County Music Club in Bald Hills, where he was a member. He was in a band called Kids Country that performed during school holidays at various venues and made appearances on the Reg Lindsay Show and Conway Country. He also teamed up with Angie Marquis, Tony Black, Peter Black, and Tina Ruen in a teen rock band that performed during the summer holidays at the local water slide and theme park. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it does say that. Wikipedia, lawyer up. Yeah. I'm coming Maybe for you ya. should just stop paying. No, I'm still going to pay and I'm going to sue. I'm only going to sue for the amount of money I've given them. Okay, that's my. Or, you know, you could use some of your $200 million to like really take them to the cleaners. Well, I'll need to because I'm $10 million in debt for my oh, um, charitable contributions. You're right. You're yeah, right. My <laughs> philanthropic endeavors. What's your cause? Well, of course, I believe in treatment centers. Yeah. I believe in Planned Parenthood. I think teens with really restrictive parents need a safe place to go make plans for being sexual. Yeah. I know that's a polarizing one, but I do think people need that. Yeah. And maybe the Prostate Cancer Foundation. Yeah, you already are give to that. Color of Change. Yeah. Throw them a little cheddar. Yeah. I'll just spread it around, you know? Yeah, that's that's good. Well, and you know, for years I've been attending and even hosting the galas for Ferraris for All Americans, which is a really important cause I believe in. FAA. What is it? Well, it's the it's the belief that uh, all people are entitled to a Ferrari oh in America. Oh, my God. That mm-hmm. is powerful. Yeah. Can you imagine what the mood everyone would be in if they drove a Ferrari that everywhere? That is so lovely. I'm so glad you're... Yeah. Devoting some time and energy and money to that. Well, a lot of people think I'm just um, supporting the Federal Aviation Committee or whatever, FAA. Yeah. But it's Ferrari for <laughs> all FFAA. <laughs> so please contribute to the FFAA. <laughs> <laughs> 
Whoa, whoa, Bader Meinhof, because my email's up and I see in my email Planned Parenthood. No kidding. Yeah. What's it saying? You're due on what day? Is it tracking your pregnancy? <laughs> Another pee baby on the way? Oh, pee baby. I don't know. You tell me. The pee baby takes both of us. By the way, a second great joke came out. Did you already t- say the oh, second? Oh, shit. No, one? we have to. We yeah, have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let me find it. God, the people with their pee baby jokes are just killing it. They're on point. We also are in litigation right now with um, Pee Wee football because we brought Pee Baby to Pee Wee football. Mm-hmm. And they said she couldn't play. Yeah. And we're like, it's called Pee Wee football. Like it's no one else should be more. We Pee Babies. <laughs> we the Pee Babies of the United States of America. <laughs> okay. This was from Leon Vanklink. And he said, Dax, Monica, are you guys jealous that Monica's baby already has a pee body? <laughs> that was so funny. That's a Peabody reference, a Peabody Award reference. Yes. Yeah, that's Because we great. said Dax kind of for a second was hoping that we'd get one. Yeah. I try to self-nominate us for a Peabody. <laughs> I don't even know what it is or how it works, but I've self-nominated Oh, us. my gosh. In college, I don't know why Georgia is connected to this, but you could tr- audition, try out... For being like a Peabody judge. Voter. Voter. Uh, Yeah, okay. Judge, judge. voter. Panelist. Yes. Pianist. And I auditioned, tried out, and I didn't get it. Really? Yes, and I'm still pissed. And Anthony got it. Oh, he did? Yeah. So he has a hand in whatever year that was Peabody winning? Yeah. Oh, my God. He must feel so proud. He does. I want to make clear, the Peabody is our Peabody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's not the virgin... Um, birth. It's not the Christ baby. No, it's not. It took two. It took my pee and your pee. And a good deal of fermenting. Yeah, exactly. That's just the natural world. You know, in there is the is probably the answer of how it went from inorganic to organic. <gasps> the big question? Yeah, the cradle of civilization. Should is I in invite the some scientists to visit To examine pee baby? our baby, okay. yeah, to play with her and oh, I hope- hold him. I don't know what he identifies. <laughs> it's a she. Well, we identify her that way. I'm just not positive. Oh, you're right. That. We shouldn't yeah. decide for no, her. You're no, right. Yeah. We don't see a penis, I can tell you that much. Or, a, you, or a vagina. Well, <laughs> but at times you can you're like, oh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, well, that's all for Keith. Good night, pee babies. <laughs> what if a um, militant faction of armchairy started and they <laughs> called themselves the pee babies? Oh, God. A militant? <laughs> Why do they? to be militant because every subgroup of any group yeah, becomes right. more militant there's no like less strict subgroups so they always get stricter don't make the pee baby the face of some militant group. that is not fair to her him us as a family as a pee family yeah that's just really not fair um, uh, love you love you 